Welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I also lead Bruce's Modern Deterrence Project, which studies such hostile activities and what to do about them. You can find On the Cusp wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And to learn more about modern deterrence, visit rusi.org slash moderndeterrence, where you can also sign up for our mailing list and learn about our events and other activities. My guest today is Rear Admiral Eva Skoghastum. Now, I've been wanting to interview Eva ever since the podcast launched, and now I got my chance. The reason I wanted to interview Eva is not just that she was recently appointed commander of the Swedish Navy, which is a big job considering Sweden's long coastline and geographic position. Eva has also had a phenomenally interesting career. She joined the armed forces as a volunteer conscript in 1987, which girls could do back then. And they joined a very large number of male conscripts as back in those days, Sweden had military service, which was mandatory for men, but girls could volunteer. And that's what Eva did. She then trained as a naval officer and commanded a string of increasingly large vessels and served with the United Nations Peacekeeping Force in Lebanon. But here's the part I really wanted to get to, submarine hunting. I'm pretty sure most of the listeners of this podcast, and in fact most people who have ever watched a submarine movie, have secretly dreamt of commanding a submarine hunt. In 2014, when a suspected submarine was spotted off the coast of Stockholm, Eva commanded the force that hunted it. It was a high-stakes chase with Russian officials and media ridiculing Sweden, including Eva Skogkastlen personally, even as the hunt was going on. And as in most submarine hunts, the suspected sub got away. And yes, it was the sub. In its subsequent investigation of all the evidence, the Swedish armed forces found that the object was almost certainly a submarine. But was it a Russian submarine? That the armed forces didn't say. All I'll say is that the incident took place in October 2014, and the friendly countries announced when their submarines would like to visit. Now, Eva, something I've been thinking about is that at the moment, everybody's concerned about coronavirus, and that's seen as the biggest threat and the biggest risk to our societies. But obviously, National, more traditional national security threats haven't gone away. They're still there. We just, we're just not thinking about them. Now, from your vantage point as commander of the Swedish Navy, which threats are you most concerned about at the moment? Actually, I'm most concerned about the threats that we don't see and that we don't count that are, that are there, actually, uh, because that is the more, most probable threats we uh, we can take care of because all the threats that you can see you can also take care of and and uh, be in a little bit more advantage uh, or or uh, take care of before they happen and we can have the readiness for them but the, the things that we don't see and that we don't count on uh, that is the most dangerous one i think and can you specify any of those <laughs> <laughs> yes of course <laughs> i can absolutely uh, the threats that uh, that uh, in a long term that you don't see when the 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 normal picture is cha- uh, changed uh, for example if you don't have the um, uh, thrust to our authorities our organizations you can uh, push that forward 
so slowly that the people in the com- country do not uh, really see that they are changing their their opinion about, for example, the politicians or the authorities and so on. And that is a threat that also gets back to the armed forces and the, to the Navy, of course, as, as well. Uh, if you don't believe in the armed forces, that you really can count on them. And then you have, of course, the kinetic threats as well. If we are in a technical way underestimating the adversaries we have. So that is a threat in itself as well. So I think you had different threats. You have threats that uh, you you are in the society. Uh, You can take care of them, but you don't see them. And then you have the threats against the armed forces as well that you don't uh, really count on, that you don't can't take care of. Uh, our supply change to change to to uh, to our country. Of course, that is a threat. If you threat those uh, lines of communication, you have to take care of that one, and that is a navy task, absolutely. So I can see you have certain different threats in the, in the society as a whole. And we should remember that that the Baltic Sea is one of the world's most heavily trafficked bodies of water and uh, is vital to supplies going in and out of uh, all the countries yes. there. So and we have actually we have uh, more than three thousand movements every day uh, in the Baltic Sea, and we haven't seen that decreasing during the uh, Corona pandemic. So and that is interesting because if, if you look in the air, you can see there is not that much traffic any longer, but at sea it has almost actually increased instead of decreased uh, during the uh, corona uh, pandemic. That is a very interesting piece of information because it, it obviously shows how dependent we are. Even if, even if we are home, we still need our daily supplies. And so it makes it even more vital that the navies of, of those countries are out there patrolling and, and potentially assisting civilian vessels that may be in trouble. And I wanted to highlight something that you said previously about the threats to the reputation of authorities. And you've obviously experienced some of of that aggression yourself in your previous role as as the commander of a Sweden submarine hunting flotilla. But I want to get to another point first, and that is the role that you have today, which is commander of the Swedish Navy, where you're really responsible for for an enormous coastline and and the waters outside that coastline. And and it's, it's, uh, for those who don't study the the Swedish geography every day, it is an enormous coastline. And not only is it long, it's also incredibly complex because there's a lot of archipelagos and and it's a, a very uneven coastline, which makes it much harder to defend. And so I wanted to ask you, is it even possible to defend uh, the Swedish coastline? I think some people maybe think that we have some kind of a fence or something around our coastline when we are talking about defending it. But we are defending it just by being present at sea, because then we are showing that we are able to and that we are willing to defend our country. So if you are talking about defending, like having a fence around it, it's quite impossible. We have 2,700 kilometers of the coastline. And as you say, we have the archipelago, only in Stockholm archipelago, we have 30,000 islands, uh, small islands and rocks. So it's very hard to, of course, defend it in that way that you can never deny an adversary to, to, to get into the country if they are really would like to do that. But since we are at sea, we are surveilling 
we are maintaining our surveillance at sea 24 hours per day, every year, uh, every day of the year. And then we are showing the presence and then showing our willingness to defend it. But we are, we are a small navy, uh, both the amphibious forces and, and the naval forces, uh, we are quite small. And we are depending on collaboration together with others. And we are saying that all over again in the, the politicians do that as well, but also the armed forces that we are defending our country together with others. And when you say small navy, maybe for the benefit of our listeners, you could just describe how much you have, how many uh, vessels and, and how many uh, personnel. The personnel is uh, above uh, 3,000 uh, employed. And then we have conscripts as well. We have uh, taken the conscripts back since uh, two years back. About the ships, we have five uh, mine hunters. Together with the EOD, we have seven. We have five uh, VSP corvettes that are really multi-purpose uh, vessels in all the three dimensions, uh, above water uh, and air, and of course, uh, sub-warfare as well, so, uh, subsurface as well. We have four submarines. We are building two very new submarines that we will have in a couple of years. We have uh, some uh, auxiliary ships as well. And then we amphibious forces. We have one battalion and we are growing to one more battalion uh, later on in the West Coast. So it's a small Navy. Yes, we have absolutely been bigger. But I must say that the Navy we have today is very competent. And of course, I say that as a, as a, a chief of the <laughs> Swedish Navy, but I really mean it. We are really, and I think we are appreciated when we go and work together with others. They always actually appreciate our personnel because we are, we are well-skilled and well-educated. And your own education, if I may insert, began in 1987, and I want to mention that because you just now, uh, a second ago, mentioned the latest intake of conscripts or national service participants who uh, have been selected, they are part of a, a very small group of, of uh, young men and women who are selected each year mm -hmm. um, after a, a hiatus when Sweden didn't have national service. But you were part of a sort of a pioneering generation of women who did voluntary national service. And, and can you just Tell us why you decided to do such a thing. All the men had to do it and you did it uh, well, because you wanted to yeah. uh, I decided when I was 15 years old that I was interested to go to the armed forces. And then uh, I had a small practice at school when uh, I visited the Navy in Karlskrona. And I got interested in that one. So that was my, actually, the first selection I did to become a naval officer and uh, to join the academy. Uh, after my high school. And we should mention that Karlskrona is uh, a famous naval base. And I, I remember at age 10 seeing uh, an, a Swedish naval vessel there and being completely blown away. And that's how my own interest in national, <laughs> in national security began. Yeah. And we should also mention that that naval base was uh, where um, the Soviets had a particular interest in, in, in the 80s and, and, and before as well, and outside Koskuna is where the famous Whiskey on the Rocks ha incident happened in 1981 when a Soviet submarine got stuck, ran aground uh, off the coast of Koskuna, and it led to major embarrassments, clearly for the Soviets, because <laughs> they couldn't deny that they had been there. Oh. Which leads us to my next question, because the next incident, submarine famous or infamous uh, submarine incident, where 
uh, Sweden was the target country took place in 2014 when a mysterious object was spotted uh, on numerous occasions off the archipelago of Stockholm and the Swedish Navy, specifically the 4th Naval Warfare Flotilla, was called in to hunt the submarine and the 4th uh, Warfare Flotilla led by none other than Eva Skoghaslum. So if I wanted to, to ask you, it's, it's obviously extremely difficult to, <laughs> to hunt a submarine. Can you tell us about that particular case and the challenges in, in finding that object? Yeah, that was a very interesting week we had. Uh, we actually challenged ourselves. We haven't uh, challenged ourselves in, in that way in uh, several years. But uh, that was interesting. It was interesting to see how the personnel reacted and acted. They were not uh, prepared uh, at all, actually. We were not in a high readiness. But uh, in a couple of hours, we have went uh, at sea and actually were performing very well and uh, doing our tasks. So that was a very proud moment for me to see that even not in readiness, uh, the people are very loyal and they uh, really solve the tasks very, in a very uh, good way. But, but it's, it is challenging to, to do the submarine warfare hunting in the archipelago. And for, for those who not, uh, are not well known about the, that uh, particular challenge, we can say that the archipelago, it looks the same in the bottom of the sea as it does above the sea. So you have all the islands and rocks, it looks the same in the bottom of the sea. So then you can see how, it, how hard it is for, for our sonars, for example, to really fulfill the, the, uh, the task we have. And including that, the salinity in, uh, in the Baltic Sea is very low if you compare, for example, to the West Coast and the Atlantic Ocean. The, the medium depth in the uh, Baltic Sea is uh, not even 60 meters, so it's very shallow waters, and that also hampers the uh, sonars, of course. So it is very, very hard. But I think we, uh, we performed very well in that, um, in that week, I, I, I will say. And we learned a lot uh, during that week as well. And we should say that the submarine hunts, uh, like most other submarine hunts, ended with the intruder slipping away. But it's, that's the reality, I think, of, of submarine hunters. You rarely, <laughs> you rarely catch the intruder. Um, and I remember that, that case specifically because there was a lot of disinformation directed against the Swedish government, Swedish armed forces, and against you specifically uh, or personally. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? to hunt for submarine while being ridiculed and, and uh, questioned by, in this case, uh, Russian media at the same time. Yeah. And I can say that we still are. Uh, we are still questioned about it. Uh, the media are still questioned about it. And this is very hard because all the information that we have in the armed forces, we, we cannot publish because it is of uh, classified information. And then it's very hard for, for us to tell everything. We can tell some part of it, but if you would like to really mischarge you, uh, it's very easy to do that. Well, I can say it, that was a new uh, situation for us because the media, they were delivering news at the same time. They were uh, online all the time. So they could go by helicopters or by boats and being in the area when we were uh, operating in. That, that was really a new situation for us. 
to take care of the online media because normally they are maybe sending that in the news in the evening but nowadays nowadays journalists uh, have the the ability to be there online and that was quite tricky for us to to take care of it's a little bit from my perspective a little bit similar to when there's an accident and and or some sort of mm. uh, fight or brawl or some sort of situation involving the police and uh, people turn up and, and just start filming while the police officers are trying to do their job. And I can imagine that's really mm. uh, distracting uh, while they are trying to solve an, an, uh, an active yeah. case. I, I can say I, I truly uh, agree with you. There is one, I can say that there is something that really are not the same because the media, they are they are doing their job. I mean, the filming the accidents, they are maybe not doing their job because they are just curious. But the media, they are really doing their job and their job is to, to publish and report the news. But when it hampers our situation at sea, then it gets quite yeah, disturbing. But I have full confidence or, or, or can I say, I have full trust of, of course, they are doing their job. Absolutely, I, I can see that as well. But mm. we have to find a new... A new way to operate, yeah. And what would that look like? I think I, I can say that in, in the late 80s and especially in the beginning of the 90s, I think the, the media, the, the reporters were maybe more uh, invited to the armed forces uh, in like, like uh, media meetings or something. So maybe we should take that back again and just educate the media because it's very hard to report about anti-submarine warfare hunting uh, when it's very hard to uh, to uh, explain what, what difficulties it is. And uh, yeah, so I think maybe that we can work together a little bit more together with the reporters. That's something I've thought about as well. I mean, how many reporters specialize in, in the armed forces. There are obviously there is a beat, a, a military beat, and some, some reporters report from the military beat over many years, but most don't. And how are you supposed to gain this expertise in military matters mm. so that you can then report accurately and, and with, with great insight? Mm. And, and I think actually that in, in journalism uh, training programs, there should be uh, a military specialty so that they arrive with, <laughs> for example, uh, expert knowledge in anti-submarine warfare <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, I, I promise that would be uh, that, that would be immediate results yeah. if something that, that you and I have discussed a lot of the years is how to involve uh, young people in national security and you obviously started very young yourself as a, as a volunteer conscript back in the day and, and you've remained involved ever since but most people most young people don't Start to say, well, I think I'd like to join the armed forces to see what it's like, and and uh, why would they when they have so little experience with it? Whereas most of us know a teacher, and we might say, oh yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd like to become a teacher because it seems like a fun or interesting or rewarding profession. So now in Sweden, military service is back, but in a very competitive fashion, so that the armed forces only choose a very small number of uh, young men and women. What are your thoughts on, on ways in, in which the armed forces can engage young people uh, outside or in addition to, to national service to, to get them interested so that the armed forces don't always have to rely on advertising campaigns for, <laughs> for soldiers and, and, and to some extent officers. And I have to say that's, that's a problem that we have in the UK and many other countries as well that when it comes time to, to recruit soldiers and officers, the armed forces do these fantastic advertisement 
campaigns uh, and then it all looks fantastic but it, it, that's just a superficial approach what are your thoughts about how to how to engage young people i think it's it's really a question of educating them and but also get them interested in very in, in when they are not that old because if you get them interested when they are maybe 14 15 years old uh, and and also well educated in the how the society works and I think we maybe, it's not in every school, I think they are educated in what the armed forces really do. Because they think that the people in, in the armed forces uh, loves war, for example. And I can say we, we do not. We do not would like to have war. Uh, and we, it's the opposite instead. So I think, as you said, we have 100,000 18-year-old people, people in, in Sweden every year. And we take five percent of them maybe we are decreasing increasing that one to eight percent but we take five percent of them every year and educate them in to do the conscript conscripts and national service and the rest of them the rest ninety five thousand, do not get the education and i think that we would would be very beneficial for the whole society if we can educate the other ones uh, maybe in a small uh, two month uh, long period to educate them in uh, like, the, that, like the basic parts you do when you do the national service, taking care of yourself, medical aid and everything. Of course, it's expensive, but if you get back a member in the society that really uh, are loyal, they, when they are loyal to the society and really take care of the society, I think we can win those money back again. That's right, we'd gain more cohesion within society yeah people would realize what sort of threats face our societies and, and the sort of role that they could play in, in help our mm. society remain uh, resilient against yeah. those threats. And, and obviously there is, there is a practical aspect as well, which is that if you know how to do first aid, that's, that's great. Uh, and then uh, that's one more person who will be able to help in case of, of, of an emergency. And we don't have to rely so much on first responders and others who are paid to uh, look after crises or address mm. crises. If I, one last thing I wanted to ask you about is Sweden is a naval neighbor of Russia, which likewise has a, um, a large navy and that is also active in the Baltic Sea, uh, not surprisingly. So it's clear that Russia hasn't lost interest in Sweden since that submarine incident in 2014. And so now that you're no longer just commanding the submarine hunters, but the whole Navy, what would you tell Russia about the capabilities of the Swedish Navy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I must start with that we have never connected 2014 anti-submarine warfare hunting with, with uh, the Russians. But of course, Russia is one uh, of the uh, nations that take part in the Baltic Sea region. Uh, and we are exercising both them and we are exercising every day and we are meeting. Uh, we meet each other at sea and I, I must say that it's today. It, it is respectful. We are curious about each other, but I think we are behaving respectfully uh, towards each other also. There are other nations in the Baltic Sea as well, both nations that belong to the Baltic Sea, but also other nations that come into the Baltic Sea and exercise as well. So we are exercising together with others. Almost every exercise we do is together with others. 
And maybe also that is a signal that you are sending, that you are exercising together with other nations. Uh, we are, for example, very, very connected to Finland. We exercise and, and together with Finland because we are so tight, connected to each other. We are planning uh, together and so on. But also other, other nations, and of course they are the, the NATO nations, uh, both United States, UK, UK, of course, and we have Norwegians, Danish, and uh, Poland, and the Baltic states as well, and, and Germany, of course. So we are operating together with others and, and uh, exercising together with others uh, every day. And I think that is a very good signal to send, that we are doing the, the, it together with others. And I must say that, that the Swedish Navy, as I said before, I must quote, uh, actually a UK naval officer told me it was 15 years ago. He said, you have killing teeth. And I must say that I, I actually agree with him because we have, maybe we have small vessels and not that great amount of them, but they actually have killing teeth. They are very um, uh, vital uh, assets for us. And I must say that we are good at uh, the things we do. Yeah. So killing teeth and friends, <laughs> that's what the Navy needs. <laughs> Eva Skogkaslum, commander of the Swedish Navy, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much to you, Elizabeth. Do you think it was a Russian submarine? How important is the Navy in gray zone defense? What do we do if people lose trust in the armed forces and in other government institutions? And what is the best way of involving youth in national security? Tweet me your thoughts. My Twitter handle is Elizabeth Bro. Many thanks to our producer, Tom Ascott. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.